Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. My last sermon, we began looking at Matthew 19, 27 through 29. We'll read that again this morning. Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit, on, sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The disciples had just heard Jesus say that with man it was impossible for anyone to be saved. And that salvation was only possible by a miracle of God. And that statement would have especially been shocking for these men for obvious reasons, wouldn't it? Um, Put yourself in their shoes. They had left everything. Peter, James, John, uh, and Andrew had left their uh, profitable fishing businesses and their boats and their inheritance. Matthew had left his career as a tax collector for the Romans. Uh, They each had their own story, but these disciples had left everything they knew behind to follow Jesus. And follow them they had day and night for three whole years by this point. And now Jesus makes it clear that nothing that man does can merit salvation. With man, being saved is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So the disciples were concerned. It even uses the word they were astonished. They were perplexed by this. They were taken aback. When the disciples, they were concerned that they had possibly given up everything for nothing. So they asked this question that has two aspects. The explicit part is, what then will there be for us? If it's impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom, it's possible that we've left everything for absolutely nothing. That we're going to get nothing out of this. We've given up everything for nothing. And that takes us to the implicit part of the question. If it's impossible for man to merit salvation, with man this is impossible, and only by a miracle of God can man be saved, but with God all things are possible, how can we even know if we are saved or not? Or that we, How can we even know if we're going to receive anything for our sacrifices? And answering those questions was the main point of this whole section. And Jesus assures them. He says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me. It's an assurance. There's a guarantee with all the authority of heaven behind it. Amen, I say unto you. That all of you who have left, that you're going to be rewarded. That the reward is worth the sacrifice. You say, "Well, well, how does that not work? If everybody that leaves gets something, then you get it by man's efforts. No, you've got to remember that the reason that you follow Jesus is because he gave you faith. You follow because he opened your eyes. You don't get the reward because of anything that you did. God did it, and the evidence is that you followed. And once he gives you the faith, you will follow, and all that follow will get the reward. So you know, and you know you're going to get something. And what what are you going to get? We saw last week the disciples are going to get authority over the whole church. 
that they were going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who left would be recompensed many times over, a hundredfold, it says in Mark's Gospel, and many times over, it says here. So, if we've already covered the main point of this text, that the reward is worth the sacrifice, then why are we here again? Well, although it's not the main point of the text, the text does address when they will receive this reward. Remember, we, we titled the sermon, How Do We Know, uh, What Will We Get, and When Will We Get It, or When Will They Get It? Well, when does it say they'll get it? In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sit, will sit on His glorious throne. <laughs> I didn't have time to address this peripheral aspect of the text last week because doing so was going to take longer than I wished it would. But it's necessary that we do address it to clear up some common misconceptions related to the kingdom of heaven. The significance of actually what did take place in Jesus' resurrection because it's a bigger deal than we make out of it. And uh, lastly, also a misconception of what is the mission of the church? What are we supposed to be doing down here. So this sermon is more, I, I call it, topogetical. We're, we're needing to do some background work and instead of the microscope down on each individual word in this text, we're going to need to back up with a telescope to kind of a big picture so we can understand what Jesus is saying is going to happen and when it's going to happen. So to do that, to nail this down, we're of... of the timing and even the nature in some ways of what the disciples will get, we need to understand the title that's in this text for Jesus and the throne that he's going to be sitting on and then the timing becomes obvious. So let's begin here with the title. What do you think is Jesus' most used title for himself? Son of David, maybe? Or... Messiah or Christ, you might think, or rabbi or teacher, lord or master, perhaps the bridegroom or the good shepherd. I like those, don't you? Uh, nope. It's, it's none of these, and none of them are even close. In fact, Jesus used one title for himself more than all of those other titles combined. That's a big deal, isn't it? We need to understand the title that Jesus used for himself more than he used all the other titles combined. We need to understand that. And that title is a title that's mostly ignored and that is usually misunderstood even when it's mentioned. And that's the title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus almost exclusively referred to himself as the Son of Man. An astounding 84 times that he calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels, including a jaw-dropping 32 occurrences in Matthew's 28 chapters. So more than once per chapter in Matthew, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's not an overstatement to say that a man can't really grasp the message of Matthew's Gospel at all unless he understands the significance of this title, right? Doesn't that make sense? But yet so many people treat the title, the Son of Man, as if Jesus used it in a way to further identify himself with mankind. Because you just listen to what the words say, Son of Man. So, obviously, if you don't know the Bible very well and you're not comparing Scripture with Scripture, you say, Son of Man. He must be talking about the hum His humanity. He's a Son of Man. Right? So it's presented as a title that demonstrates Jesus' humility, His willingness to come and dwell with His people and be one of Him, that He was tempted in every way, just like we have been, yet without sin. And, and I understand how people get there. Don't you? 
But a person can only arrive at that conclusion if they haven't read the Bible very much. Because Jesus didn't come up with this title for himself. It, it didn't originate with Jesus at all. Jesus knew the Old Testament and he applied this extremely loaded and supercharged title to himself. We're going to look at how the title is used in Ezekiel, and then how it was used in Daniel, and then throughout Matthew's Gospel to get a better grasp of what, what is in that title. Well, we're going to begin with the Son of Man in Ezekiel. Ezekiel was written over the course of about 22 years from 1592 to 1570 B.C. It's where we find the... We first see the title Son of Man used. I've actually kind of not mentioned Ezekiel used it before. I've mentioned it's used in Daniel, but I've not talked about Ezekiel because I didn't understand the significance of its use in Ezekiel myself. Because there it's not prophetically used. It's not looking forward to the arrival of the Son of Man. It's actually Ezekiel is called Son of Man. He's addressed as Son of Man again and again. It's used by God in reference to the priest Ezekiel himself. God called this priest to be a prophet to Israel. Listen to his calling in Ezekiel 2, 1-3. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel, to, na to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. So this priest, Ezekiel, was called from the priesthood to a prophetic ministry to warn of coming judgment on that generation of Jews. If you do a quick walk through Ezekiel, you get a feel for how consistent uh, the use of this title, Son of Man, was applied to Ezekiel throughout it. That's how God called. That's what God called him over and over again. And it's a message full of warning, judgment, and doom. Ezekiel was made a watchman over Israel. He was commanded to say every word of warning that was given to him for the people. And if he failed in this respect, then their blood would be on his hands. We see that, that parable of the watchman mentioned twice in the book of Ezekiel. That you've got to tell them, blow the trumpet, warn them that, that, that destruction is coming. If you don't blow the trumpet, then, then, they, then their blood's on your hands for not warning them when I've told you that the, the danger's coming. See if any of this sounds familiar as we walk through Ezekiel. Ezekiel gave a warning about a siege and the first destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians and the first destruction of the first temple in Ezekiel 4, 5, and 15. He warned about the wrath and despair that Israel would face on the coming day of the Lord. Did Jesus kind of talk about the day of the Lord? He didn't. Did he talk about the destruction of the second temple? Yep. Did he talk about the destruction of Jerusalem the second time? Yep. He told them that the glory of the Lord would leave the temple in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Did he not say, Behold, I leave to you your house desolate? He absolutely did. The false prophet and the idolatrous elders would be condemned. It talks about in Ezekiel 13 and 14. What is Matthew 23 all about? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you, you say and you do not do. And then he goes through all these woes to the Pharisees, exactly like Ezekiel had done. Israel had become a faithless bride, even though God had been faithful to her. And they had become adulterous. That's Ezekiel chapter 16. You adulterous generation, Jesus said. Is, right? Even when the message turned to hope, it wasn't hope for the, the corruption of uh, the, uh, the maintenance of the status quo. There was hope because God was going to do something new and great among them. Something the hardened, rebellious, and condemned would not enjoy. 
God would establish a new covenant with His people where He would place a new heart in his, and a new spirit within them in Ezekiel 11 and 16. The promise of hope in the new work would arrive at the cost of the loss and destruction of the entire old system and the entire old way of life. That's the message of the book of Ezekiel. So the priest turned prophet Ezekiel was the initial God-appointed son of man. But now let's turn our attention to Daniel 7, the next time we see this used. In Daniel 7, Daniel was shown four great beasts that rose up out of the sea, one after the other. They represented four great kingdoms that would have dominion on the earth. Each of the beasts were described as mutated or deformed versions of creatures in God's creation. A testament to the chaos and disorder of evil men and idolatrous nations. Comparing the four beasts with the description of the great statue of, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in, in Daniel chapter 2, it's generally agreed that these kingdoms represent Babylon, the Mede and Persian Empire, Greece, and then finally Rome. The final beast, representing the final kingdom, serves as a solid time indicator of the events that were about to unfold in the vision, in the vision when the Son of Man is introduced. In Daniel's vision, after the fourth beast, who was unique among the beasts, had been given dominion, Daniel saw something glorious and magnificent. So the world powers, the biggest world governments that there had ever been, culminating in this fourth one... Daniel looks forward and sees the rise of the Roman Empire and then this takes place in Daniel 7, 9 through 10. And I looked and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A steam of fire issued and came out from before him and a thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before the Ancient of Days and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Something's about to change to overthrow all the dominions, all the large governments that have ever been on the earth and establish a new government that would supplant them. In verses 11 and 12, all dominion is taken away from these great beasts, these nations and governments who had come out of the sea. And they prophesy of the inauguration of the everlasting kingdom of God. And Daniel saw the one to whom the dominion would be handed in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. If you're not there, you want to turn here with me for this part. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. What happens here when this dominion is being taken away from the kings of the earth? I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Daniel and Ezekiel, keep this in mind, Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. Uh, the book of Ezekiel was finished in approximately 15, uh, 570 B.C., and Daniel was written somewhere around 40 years later. 33 to 40 years later. So Daniel had read the book of Ezekiel. It's very likely actually that, uh, because they were exiled to Babylon within 10 years of one another. They likely knew one another and they, they definitely knew of one another. So when Def Daniel prophesied of a son of man figure who would come, he's saying there's going to be some... We had the son of man, Ezekiel, one like him. Somebody exactly like this Ezekiel figure is going to come up. Another priest who would be a prophet. And Ezekiel warned 
Just like Ezekiel warned of judgment on his generation of Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple, they already knew once it was torn down it was going to be built back because uh, Cyrus, it was already prophesied in Isaiah that it would be torn down and built back and it would be commanded by another king. So they knew there would be another temple. So look at all the, the in-depth interwoven prophecies that are going on here. But Daniel's now saying this figure is going to command, uh, is going to prophesy the destruction of this yet-to-be-built temple. Just like Ezekiel had, the son of man, the son of man, would warn of the of the destruction of the rebuilt temple and Jerusalem during his generation. Ezekiel warned of wrath and despair and the day of the Lord, a day of the Lord, a day of judgment. And the son of man would warn of a day of the Lord, a coming judgment on his generation as well. Ezekiel warned that the glory of the Lord would leave the temple. So would the son of man. Ezekiel warned of false prophets and rebuked Israel for being an unfaithful bride. So would this son of man. But the vision doesn't end here. He's not exactly like him. He's better. He's, he's like a son of man, but there's something else that's going to happen. This coming son of man would be far more glorious than the first. In the night vision, Daniel, uh, in, in, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that this human person would stand before the Ancient of Days himself and be pre presented before the Father. And to him would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This greater son of man would be a priest and a prophet like Ezekiel, but he would also be given a kingdom. He would be a prophet, a priest, and a king uniting the offices and ushering in an everlasting, indestructible kingdom. This concept's a big deal, actually, in the Old Testament. The kingship and priesthood were necessarily separate, but the Bible tells us that one day someone would come and unite them. The kings before, when they came to the throne, they would write a copy of the law for themselves on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. But... So you had to have separate offices. The king is writing it in the presence of the Levitical priest, but it was prophesied. Listen to this prophecy in Zechariah 6, 12 through 15. Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Then he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord that something dramatic was going to happen with this one that would unite the offices and usher in the everlasting kingdom. This son of man figure would be like Ezekiel, but he would be the one that would unite the offices and inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. Remember when Saul tried to do priestly duties and he offered the sacrifices, what happened? The kingdom was taken away from him because he was not the one that would unite the offices. Remember when Uzziah wanted to burn incense in the temple of the Lord and the priest withstood him to his face? You remember that? And then he, he got mad because, hey, I am the king. I'm, I'm, I've been a great king. I'm going to unite the offices. And God struck him with leprosy. Isaiah 6, 1-4. In the year 
of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. That there was the whole Old Testament is telling us about a priest who would become king, and the train of his robe, his kingly robe, would fill the temple because he would be the one that you would unite the offices. And what happens there? The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That the, the reign of this king would not be confined to just Israel, but his, the train of his robe would fill the entire earth. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple would be trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. There would be no more need for a temple because he would build a new temple. And what is that temple? Of course we know. The church in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells in men because Jesus has abolished the need for any further sacrifices. All that is happening and it's all loaded also into this term, this son of man term. Clearly this one like the son of man would have a ministry like the priest Ezekiel but would be the one who would unite the offices and sit on his throne forever. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for we know the text. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Jesus, the Son of Man, was the one who would appear before the Ancient of Days and accomplish that. So then we move now. So we've seen the Son of Man in Ezekiel, and we've seen the Son of Man in Daniel 7. They're related and building on one another. And Jesus now applies this title to himself 32 times in the book of Matthew. I'm not going to cover every one of them. But we see clearly that Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He wasn't referring to his lowly humanity. Oh, Jesus, weak and meek and lowly. It's not what he's referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man, is it? He's tipping his hat to the apocalyptic language of judgment in Ezekiel and to the prophecy of Daniel which said one like the Son of Man would come in judgment, wrath, and eternal dominion, the changing of an age, the beginning of a new and better covenant taking on all the prerogatives of God Himself. Ironically, the title Son of Man is more associated with Jesus' divinity than it is associated with His humanity. That's the irony of it. The, biblical, the biblically literate Jew knew exactly what Jesus was saying by using that title. The Son of Man had come. Wrath and judgment awaited the faithless and idolatrous covenant breakers. The big problem they had was they didn't have a problem with the Messiah coming as the Son of Man executing judgment on all their enemies. What they didn't realize was the ones that rejected Christ were the enemies. They were the covenant breakers. They wanted Him to destroy Rome. He's coming to destroy Jerusalem. That's what they didn't get. So the old was being done away with and something new was happening that would, need no, no, that would leave no place for empty religion. So let's walk through Matthew together. Get back to Matthew. And we're just going to look at some of these uses of Matthew and see how they match up exactly with what we saw in Daniel 7 and the book of Ezekiel. First, you see the prerogatives of deity. You see that? very clearly in Jesus' usage of Son of Man. Remember when he says in Matthew 9, 
when, he's, when they bring the paralytic to him and he says, your sins be forgiven you, and then they get, what do the Pharisees do? They get mad. Remember they say to themselves and they say, who can forgive sins but God? Remember that? And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is something only God can do. They got it right. Only God can forgive, can forgive sins. But he wants them to know this Son of Man figure, I am God, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. Remember when he calls himself the Son of Man in 12.8, he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who else? Who is Lord of the Sabbath? Of course, that's God. When Jesus says that, he's giving himself. He says, I'm the one that can appear before the Ancient of Days and have the, the dominion with God himself. But not only do we see these, uh, these um, prerogatives of deity, we see pronouncement of judgment and the authority to judge. Look at 11, 18 through 24. He talks about their rejection of the prophets and then of him also, particularly John, the greatest prophet ever except for Jesus, where he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her day deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. And he pronounced these woes. Woe unto you, Horazine. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Exactly like the ministry of Ezekiel, for not receiving the prophets and not repenting when they were told to repent. Look at 13, 41 through 43. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them in a furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So not only does He pronounce judgment, He actually says, I'm the one that has authority to judge. So there's a mixture of the Ezekiel-Daniel idea in 13 as well. But then you get a shift. Turn to 16, 13 through 22. How does this Son of Man appear before the Ancient of Days? When does that happen? Well, he starts with their understanding of the Son of Man and the disciples' understanding before he rocks their world where he says, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Remember, he asked the disciples. While he's in Caesarea Philippi, which is named after Caesar and Philip, and he's saying, I'm the Son of Man because he's the one going to overthrow all the other reigns, right? And he says, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And here's all the good news. I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church, this new people of God, this new community, just like Ezekiel had prophesied would happen. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. This kingdom is, gonna, is, is going to never end, and it's going to make progress, just like Daniel said it would. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. The, the Pharisees and the, uh, the, the um, synagogue system, they have it all wrong. But you're going to do it right in the church. But then you get a shift. This was something that rocked the disciples' world. 
Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. And from that time on, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Why? Well, because he's the priest that's going to offer himself as the sacrifice, as the final act of love to redeem his people, perfectly fulfilling the law. When he raises from the dead, what's he going to do 40 days later? He's going to ascend to, the right, to, to God and appear before the Ancient of Days. He had to die first. In order to accomplish this, he had to be the priest and the sacrifice, die, fulfill the law, be raised from the dead, and then granted the kingdom, appear before the Ancient of Days, and be handed the kingdom as the perfect law-keeping prophet, priest, and king. So then, from this point on, you start seeing that again and again. They were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them after the mountain of transfiguration. They see the glory and the exaltation, but he tells them, don't tell anyone this vision until the Son of Man has raised from the dead. Because my glory and exaltation, everyone's not going to see it until I've raised from the dead and ascended. And then it's going to be clear. But don't talk about it yet. I've not earned it yet. 17, 22 through 23, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And then right after our section, I'm going to do every one of these, but right after our text, which one day I'm going to get out of chapter 19, and we'll get to 20, 17 through 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside by themselves on the way and said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock, scorch him, and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. This Son of Man language had to have all of this. He had to be the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice, to be the greater Ezekiel, so that he would then ascend into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and then be granted his... Kingdom. Do y'all see this? It's pretty wild, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. After all that's established, we get prophesied coming of the Son of Man in judgment, that He will come back after He ascends to the Ancient of Days, and He will come in judgment on that generation, destroying their temple. We see that in 23. Turn there with me. 23:37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen does her chicks under her wing, but you were unwilling. Behold your house. That's talking about the temple. Is left to you de desolate. Remember Ezekiel saying the glory would depart from the temple? Your house is left to you desolate. you still got a temple standing, but God's presence ain't going to be in it anymore because you've rejected me. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with it when his disciples came up and began to point out the, building, the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came privately and said, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Now skip forward to 24, 29 through 34. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Y'all think that's future? Well, look, 
And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when the branch is already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is nigh. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say unto you, how near, how right at the door? This generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. The Son of Man was going to come in judgment on that generation of Jews in 70 AD, bringing about the destruction of the temple that he prophesied while he was here in the flesh before he died and appeared before the Ancient of Days. Clear as day, isn't it? Clear as day. And then you see it one more time in 26, 61 through 66. They bring the false witnesses before Jesus. And one of their biggest problems with him is that Jesus, as this son of man figure, had prophesied the destruction of the temple. And they call him out for that, saying, I, this, this man stated, accusing Jesus, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Do you not answer? What is it that these men have testified against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robe and said, He is blasphemed. They knew the Son of Man title was a claim to deity and a pronouncement. You think you're judging me? I'm not scared of you. You're going to see me coming back after you've executed me and I'm going to bring judgment on you. Jesus was a boss. He was a boss. B-A-W-S-S. We spent a lot of time on the title but let's briefly turn our attention to the throne. The language the Son of Man is seated on the throne of His glory is a convergence of a couple of Old Testament texts. You've got our Daniel text that we've handled Uh, in detail. So he's a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. And it's also in accordance with that vision and its context of judgment. The the Son of Man is executing judgment and thus standing in the place of the divine judge himself. That's what we get from Daniel 7. But we also have to factor in it's borrowing from Psalm 110, 1 and 2 where the Lord, David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Notice this. Sit at my right hand, so you've got authority already, but are their enemies still active? Yeah. But will they be overcome? Well, you're going to sit here at my right hand until something's done. Until what's done? All of my enemies are put under my feet. That's what it says, right? The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. So you say, I don't feel like Jesus is ruling right now. Guys, he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. And his enemies are slowly being overcome. The kingdom of God is spreading like leaven through the whole lump. It is happening, not as quick as you want to, but be patient. He wins. Believe him. Right? The glory that in Daniel 7.13 is given to the Son of Man is now connected with the throne in Psalm 110. 
presumably on the basis that you know the, the throne of his glory, glory always attaches to the throne. So when you're, you're the power, the glory of being the absolute sovereign. But when does the New Testament signify that Jesus is granted his throne? Is it thousands of years later? Are we still waiting on it? Absolutely not. Listen to this. Listen to how clear it is throughout the New Testament. Once the Son of Man has fulfilled His ministry by dying on the cross and then is presented before the Ancient of Days, He would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that's exactly what we see. Romans 1, 4-5. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with authority, with power, by the resurrection from the dead. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right after Jesus rose from the dead, what did he say? All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. And that's why we have the authority to go and disciple who? All the people. The peoples, yeah, but all the nations. We're going to have dominion over all the nations under the name of Christ and bring the nations in subjection under the name of King Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Will sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? No. Has sat down. That he endured the cross and after that he now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Peter 3, 22. That speaking of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God? Who will be at the right hand of God? No. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Daniel 7 has been accomplished. The beasts that came up out of the sea have been subdued. Jesus now has the authority. What are we afraid of? We don't lose down here. You're going to hear that a lot. You've heard it a lot and we're going to hear it a lot. We don't lose down here. Ephesians 1, 20-23, which, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and listen to this, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, name to, in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Hebrews 1, 3, And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, the priestly act, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did He do it? When He made purification for sin, He then had fulfilled the law, fulfilled the full priesthood, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Was that redundant? Yeah. You know why? Because I wanted to show you. It's crazy that people don't see this. Because it's not in one little isolated text. It's not one debated little text that you're like, Hey, it could mean this and this. It's the whole thrust of the whole New Testament. You're not cherry-picking texts. It's the whole thrust. And it's the whole theme of the Bible. So we've seen the title, and we've looked at the throne, and now doesn't the timing take care of itself, right? Verse 28, Jesus said to him, back to Matthew, Mount, you're saying, you've not even touched Matthew. I know, I told you I was getting the, mic, the, the telescope out. Now we're going to dig the microscope back out and go back to our text. 
Now, how do we understand the when will these 12 apostles sit on these 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, the timing will be, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So it had to ensue immediately, didn't it? Right? You say, but it says in the regeneration. What's that mean? Okay. Well, now we understand that this, who the Son of Man figure is. He's the prophesied Daniel 7.13 universal everlasting ruler of the world. And we've seen how that when Jesus died, he was acquitted of all sin by the Father and therefore rose bodily from the dead and ascended bodily to heaven. And this Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days and the everlasting dominion was given to him over all peoples and nations and languages at that time. It was then that he sat down on his throne and on that throne is where he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father reigning over all creation. His kingdom is forever expanding across the earth. And we've seen how that the entire New Testament reinforces this interpretation. But why does it say in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne? If it said in the resurrection everything would fit perfectly, wouldn't it? If it didn't say in the regeneration... We'd be like, well, that makes perfect sense. But it says in the region. What does in the regeneration even mean? What is that? Is that talking about when all things are made new at the end of time in some millennial kingdom far off and distant? Is that what it? Is that what it? So kind of when you look at that, you think, well, maybe that's what it means. Well, the word palin ganesia. It it's a compound word, and it means to again become palin ganesia. Palin is again. Ganesia is to become or to be born. It's used in a wide range of contexts. It's only used twice in the whole New Testament, so you don't have a lot to compare it to. It's used right here and in Titus 3, 5, where it says that he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, where we're born again. So there it's talking about us being made new creatures, us being born again. That's the only other time it's used. So in the being born again when the Son of Man was... That doesn't make sense. So we don't have a lot to go on, but the range of meaning in the Hebrew lexicon is helpful. The word is only used for regeneration in Titus 3.5 by Paul. But if you look it up in a Hebrew lexicon, the range of meaning, how it is used throughout all Hebrew writing, uh, can I mean, Greek writing is rebirth... Regeneration, renewal, renovation, and sometimes resurrection. That in the range of meaning, it can be translated and often has been translated as resurrection. It was used by Josephus for the new birth or the resurrection of the Jewish nation after the Babylonian captivity. And by Philo of the new birth or coming back of the earth after the flood and after its destruction by fire. If we use anything other than resurrection here, we damage the clear concepts that we've seen in this entire sermon. We're like, so he's not going to sit on his throne until some distant time? Well, that's... that, that would be implied if we kept it as thinking of it that way. But if you translate it with, with the word in the resurrection, which is in the range of meaning of this word, does it not fit perfectly? It does. So why not translate it with the word that fits perfectly? Since it's in the range of meaning and clearly must be how Matthew's using the word. Right? Uh, so you don't really even have a problem here. It all fits hand and glove. He gained the throne by his resurrection from the dead. 
It's helpful to remember that right after Jesus told the disciples of the establishment of the church and the granting of the keys to the kingdom, what did he tell them? From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. Remember, he tells them, the kingdom's coming, but first I've got to do this. That's what's going on here again. What will we get? Well, you're going to get total authority. You're going to sit on 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But you're not going to do it until after I've died and raised again, and I'm sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. It's the same thing he said in chapter 16. He's just saying it here in a different way. You see that? It's the same thing. I have to raise from the dead and ascend to the throne and sit at the right hand of the throne on high. And then at that time, you will have authority to begin expanding the church which will supplant the synagogue system. And what happens 10 days after the ascension? They are given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what do they start doing? We're going to go into that next week. They start going to all the cities of Israel and start telling them that Jesus was the Messiah. And then some of them respond in faith and repentance and some of them don't. And the ones that do become part of the church. And the ones that don't, they shake their feet from the dust, denounce them as people that aren't God's covenant people and move on. They judge them on 12 tribes going forward for that 40-year period until most of the Christians, all the Christians leave and destruction comes on that generation. We'll go into that more next week to prove it. That's exactly what I think is going on here. So here's our conclusion. The life and ministry of Jesus on the earth was age-altering. It truly brought about the end of one age and ushered in the beginning of one that was new, one that was designed, intended, and superior in every way just as it was planned in eternity past. The gospel isn't simply the hope that one day God will finally do everything that He's promised. It's the good news that God already has done what He promised and that dominion has been given and that the church is now going forward, conquering and to conquer. A mighty fortress is our God. The right man is on our side. And... He grants the kingdom to us, a people bearing the fruit thereof. His present reign is not hypothetical. It's not merely spiritual. It's not limited to just our hearts and minds and our pews. It's a universal dominion over all powers and authorities, over everything. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Beloved, there's far more power and victory in the gospel for today than most Christians understand, recognize, or live as though they believe. We need to be woken up from our culturally induced slumber and begin, give, and begin living as though our Savior and Champion has actually won. Because He did. He has been given dominion. His reign will not end. His people will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Just like it says in the parable, at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Guys, I, I bemoan and grieve over the damage that that pessimistic eschatology has done to the church. It's made her a weak, impotent, I would call it force, but it's not a force. Here's, here's the fruit of it. Here's, here's the problem that it's caused. Used to, when bad things happened, people looked at themselves and said, I need to see where I'm entangled. God's chastening me and I should repent because there's covenant blessings and there's covenant curses. And when bad things happen, it's not always true, but often I'm entangled in some way and I've brought it on myself. 
how have, how have I been entangled and why am I being brought down in this culture? Am I entangled and being judged with it? How do I come out and be a separate people? Pessimistic eschatology turned it on its head. Oh, bad things are happening to you? Oh, that's because you're God's people. All who walk godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So your wife left you because you were lazy? Well, all that walk godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, that's just the way it is. But, it, I mean, you're going to suffer down here. You got lung cancer because you smoked eight packs a day? Well, all God's people, you know, they're going to have bad things happen. You know, I'm faithful as I can be, but, you know, I, I don't need to repent of anything. Liver disease? Yeah, yeah, I drank like a fish, gave myself liver disease. But, you know, that kind of thing's happened to God's people. We have to go through these trials. We don't repent of anything. All your kids, they, you let the school system raise them, indoctrinate them into false ideologies, and they left the faith, and you just don't know what happened. It just happens, you know, God's people, it don't go well for us. Guys, we're entangled. We're living just like the, the only difference in the church and the world is we live in the world just like the world and then go to church on Sunday and know how I love Jesus and live just like the world. And when the bad curses that come on the world come on the church too, instead of repenting, we say, oh, that's just the bad stuff that happens to God's people. And then you've got a weak, impotent church because the church is just like the world. We come out and we say, how am I entangled? Where am I in sin? And we repent and we shine forth and we're different and God blesses us. And we take dominion and we win down here. But it requires repentance. Oh, that's harder. Isn't it easier to just, oh, I just trust in Jesus so much. Let go and let God. That's so much easier. It just doesn't do anything. It's easier, but it doesn't accomplish anything. It destroys you and your lineage and your future generations. You actually have to see where you're entangled, see what God requires of you, say, what does Jesus' way teach, and then do it. Well, Matt, that's works righteousness. No, you need to study your Bible more. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded is called discipleship, not works righteousness. I'm not saying you're saved by doing this. I'm saying that's what being conformed to the image of Christ looks like. And thinking we lose down here keeps you from that. Guys, believe God. Repent. Where are you entangled? You know, oh, I'm suffering. Things are going so poorly. Oh, it's not just poor pitiful you. It's poor sinful you. Repent. See where you're entangled. It might be you. Think that way. Eschatology matters. How we view the reign of Christ matters. How we view the mission of the church matters. Take these things to heart. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time looking into your word. We thank you for what you accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us. We thank you for the insight into your words that we pray would bring us to repentance and that the repentance would lead to the fruit that you say it will lead to. Lord, we pray that you would give us, uh, that you would give us victory, that you would give us success, that you would give us blessing, that you would help us to impact the world around us that you would help us to have the covenant blessings instead of the covenant curses that you promised for your people. Lord, your name, we want it to be glorified. We don't want this just for our own jollies. Lord, we will enjoy it and give you praise, but we want it because we want to see your name made famous and your fame spread and your dominion spread to the ends of the earth. Lord, use us to that end. Uh, use us by the power of your Spirit to be like your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And amen.